the business now, it, it almost doesn't matter whether you were historically a television channel or a newspaper. The business now is about growing a subscription business, and that is largely a digital thing, right? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, January 6th. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about a digital makeover for one of the country's most important local papers, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And the man tasked to do it just happens to be Jeff Zucker's former deputy at CNN. Dylan explains why it matters. And later, Tina Wynn and Ben Landy discuss the latest twists in the House GOP leadership race and the ultra-far-right saboteurs fighting to take down Kevin McCarthy. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined by my cocktail buddy, since it is Friday, Dylan Byers. How you doing, Dylan? Happy Friday. I'm doing great. Happy Friday, Peter. I want to ask you about a media story that might not normally catch the eye of a, of a puck reader or a listener of the powers that be, but it is interesting. Um, Jeff Zucker's number two at CNN, uh, Andrew Morse. He was CNN's chief digital officer, I believe. Um, yeah. He left as part of the larger restructuring when Chris Licht came in to take over CNN. He was at Bloomberg back in the day before CNN. He has just signed on to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a legacy newspaper down there in Atlanta, Georgia. Why would he do that? Is that is that a step backwards? What's, what's going on here? And what does this say about the state of media, TV news, and, and, and attempts by big media organizations to build a digital presence. Right, so this is, if for, for those of us who pay attention to the media and, and media moves, this is this feels weird, right? I mean, this is sort of like, okay, you've got uh, one, one, of, one of a group of number twos at CNN overseeing CNN Digital, which uh, for all of its faults, uh, including uh, the horrendous autoplay on its videos, which has been a source of frustration <laughs> to me forever. It, it has long been like the most dominant news website. Uh, in the, obviously, there's Facebook and, and everything. But like, but but among news brands, the CNN website is a behemoth, both in terms of, of engagement, traffic and revenue. Why is the guy who ran that, who was tasked with overseeing CNN Plus, which, despite the fact that it was killed in, in the crib, uh, uh, what was at least a very ambitious project? Why is he going to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution? And in order to understand that, you have to uh, – there, there are some sort of in-the-room, behind-the-scenes things you have to understand. The first thing is that – and this is perhaps the most important part about the nature of the business is that what I have written so much, especially towards the end, as we got towards the end of 2022, so much about the 
poor state of leadership in the television news business. You really see it in broadcast. Um, certainly, Chris Licht has had his problems at CNN, which I have documented thoroughly. And one thing that you begin to realize is that maybe these jobs aren't the be-all, end-all, sexiest jobs to have in the media business anymore. The business really now, it's not its not about the linear business so much anymore, though it continues to be lucrative. The business now, it, it almost doesn't matter whether you were historically a television channel or a newspaper or, or, or what. The business now is about growing uh, a subscription business, and that is largely a digital thing, right? And in the Atlanta J- Journal-Constitution, you have what... You know, those of us in New York or L.A. might not recognize, but is a very powerful institution in Atlanta, in the state of Georgia, in the South, that will probably never come close to competing with the New York Times or even the Washington Post, but certainly could be a force in its own right, um, much more so than, say, you know, the Los Angeles Times or the San Francisco Chronicle or anything like that, Mm. if it got up to speed in the in in its digital game. And so if you take someone who has this digital experience with CNN uh, and give him that mandate, maybe you can create a really sound, successful business by turning a legacy media asset into a digital player. And perhaps you're not you're not again competing with the Times and, and the Journal and the Post, but you are at least elevating that brand and and allowing it to an endure in a way that other newspapers have not. Now, would that alone be enough for, again, the former number two at CNN to go and do this? I don't think so. I think that there's an added element here, and these are the behind-the-scenes machinations, which are that Cox, the media company that owns the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, has sent every signal to the world that it is investing heavily in local journalism and that it wants to be the lead player in local journalism, which is a potentially big business if you can do it right, because local journalism has suffered more than any other aspect of journalism over the co- over the course of the digital transformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other media company that is investing heavily in that is Axios, which has a whole local business. And of course, Cox media recently acquired Axios uh, to the tune of something like $500 million. And so the future of what Cox Media is and what the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is, is also has to do with what the future of Axios is. A lot of people I've talked to this week since the, the announcement of Andrew Morse's move have speculated that, okay, so... Jim Vandehei, the guy who founded Axios, just sold Axios to Cox. Maybe he's going to leave soon, and maybe this is just a way of getting Andrew Morse ready to sort of take over Axios or something like that. I don't have any that 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 has not happened. There is no promise that that will happen. Um, but there is a world in which all of these players, Andrew Morse, Jim Vandehei, Cox, want to be involved in this next step of what local news is going to be in the digital era. And they see an opportunity to sort of all be on the same team. And it is going to be an interesting space to watch. I think that Axios and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution will grow closer over time. Mm -hmm. And I think that their investment in local news beyond just the Axios local business will grow. 
And I think that they will they will all sort of be a part of that. So I think to sort of put a bow on this, I think there's actually a real investment to turn the AJC in, into a real strong business. But over the long term, there, there's a bigger picture play for local news here that is going to start with the AJC, and it involves Jim Van Dye and Axios. And I think that'll be an interesting thing to watch. That is interesting. Also, this is a slight tangent, but as the as the resident Southerner at Puck and his history of newspapers junkie, the AJC, I think when it was just called the Journal or the Constitution, was a pioneer in local news and that it was one of the first newspapers in the South to start radio station under its uh, same mm. name, I guess. And then it started WSB, one of the first local television channels uh, in the South. Um, so it does have like a, this thing in its in its history of innovation. Obviously, that was a long time ago. Since then, I'm glad you brought up like the regional powerhouse aspect of this. Like they'll never be the New York Times. But, you know, out here in L.A., we have the L.A. Times. And I would say like that's the newspaper record in, in the West at this point. And then you look across the South and you have lots of papers with like great legacies, like the the News and Observer in Raleigh and the, and the Courier Journal was big in Louisville under the Binghams. But there isn't really one right now. You know, the Post and Couriers won a bunch of Pulitzers down in Charleston. But, you know, Atlanta is that hub. Like it's the it's, right. you know, going back to the 90s, it was the, you know, hub of the new South, quote unquote. And there's the big airport there. And it's like the it's like the it's the capital of the South. And therefore, perhaps the AJC could be, you know, what the Boston Globe should be for the Northeast, like the biggest paper around. Um, now, right. to your point, that doesn't mean resuscitating the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It means building a digital brand. Um, and we'll see if they can do that. So forgive the detour, but one question and thought, too, about what Andrew Morse is doing, like after CNN, I kind of get the feeling that, you know, sometimes when you're an executive at a place and you go through big battles, you know, it's okay to like take a t different tack and go somewhere different and try something new. Like, you know, assume I assume he made a lot of money at CNN. Like this could be like a fun project and like it, it like a really feel good thing to like try to resuscitate local news too, in a way. Do you not agree? Yeah. I mean, like, you don't have to no, go I, from like the number two at CNN to the number one at CNN or the number one at Fox. It's okay to like hit time out. Like Jeff Zucker is doing like an investment fund right now, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. And I think I think the question, you know, for people who are at the executive level in media, if you again, you look at those sort of other jobs in, in the television space, and they're just not what they used to be. And so what is the offer? Yes, you could go be the head of a storied brand like an ABC or a CBS. But a what are you going to be expected to do? Are you going to be you're, you're really going to be managing decline? Right? Mm -hmm. And so is that really the job that you want. And I think that if you, you know, one thing about that I have learned about the executive, the media executive class is that they really get high on their own supply of, of sort of shared wisdom about where the industry is heading, right? And they want to be a part of that. And being a part of the game, if you're an ambitious person, is not playing for for what was happening today or yesterday, but is sort of trying to make some bets on the future. Mm -hmm. And look, I, again, I think that there's a ceiling to how much AJC can grow, but are you at least growing a business and do you have the potential to 
grow readership, grow revenue, and then position the company for what could be really exciting depending on what the the media landscape looks like. And is there consolidation around local and things, questions like that. And and meanwhile, like, you know, like you said, Atlanta's a hub. Georgia's not, you know, Georgia is sort of a consistently relevant uh, state when it comes to to matters of politics and culture. Uh, Yes, why not? Why? Why not? And then that's not to say that Andrew Morris had any offers to go do that, go do anything else that I know of. My guess is he probably did, but this is it's unconventional, but at least it's interesting. And you know, as somebody who chronicles the ins and outs of of the television news business, that is becoming an increasingly less and less exciting space to be. All right, Dale. Before I let you go, if you could pick one local market and go work at the newspaper there without any of the business hangups, without any of the workplace drama, just, you know, you want to go live somewhere different. Where would you go? Would you go work at the Seattle post intelligencer? Well, no, I've, I've, I've actually thought about this for a long, probably since I first started working in journalism. I, yeah, I would go and I would go to Seattle. I mean, really, when you think about it, it's sort of, Oh man, you're going to get me. We could do a whole nother podcast on this. (laughs) I think about it a lot. <laughs> but if you think about if you just think about if you just look at how quickly that city is growing and how quickly it's it's transforming itself from a sort of, you know, uh, larger than Portland scale city into like increasingly growing closer and closer to like a not San Francisco, but definitely in that direction. And you think about the tech that's there in Amazon and Microsoft and you think about the uh, it is a sort of one of one of several heartbeats for the for progressive politics and just the institutions that are there. And then I just think it is it's it's a incredibly exciting city and it's a woefully undercovered city. And there's a, there there's as much. And I just, you know, again, this is probably something that everyone feels about where they grew up in, in their hometown, especially if, you know, they had family that was involved in media and politics. But there's a lot going on there. And if someone could crack that, not just at like an Axios local level, but at like an AJC level, it would be, I think it would be compelling for people who have a stake in the industries where, where Seattle is a leader. Just to validate what you're saying about the dynamism of, of Seattle and, and how it's shifting. And, and look, if you're our age, like Seattle is already like a top tier city young people especially want to move there. Axios and, and Generation Lab did a poll, I think, earlier in 2022. And they basically asked where college students most want to live. What city do college students most want to live in after graduation? Number one was not New York. It wasn't Austin. It wasn't Miami. It was Seattle. Seattle's mm-hmm. number one among college students. Like That's the number one place they want to live. And the reasons were the, what you said. Vibrant tech industry, so much to do indoor, outdoor, music, art scene, professional sports, you know, just just like cost of living, <laughs> like like at least relative to New York and Los Angeles. Um, and so, you know, maybe one day you will start a news organization that is, befits such a dynamic, wonderful city, <laughs> Seattle, Washington. Yeah. After, um, after my run is number two at CNN. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be joining you on that journey. All right, Dylan, have a great weekend, man. All right, man. Cheers. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, 
The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here on the mic with my pal Tina Wynn, who's beaming in from the nation's capital where she's been watching the Kevin McCarthy speakership disaster unfolding in real time. <laughs> How's it going, Tina? Oh, my God. Um, I have been all over the hill. I rarely go to Capitol Hill um, unless it's for giant MAGA events. And this one certainly qualifies. Tuesday and Wednesday, I think I logged about like six miles a day walking across the entire complex in heels, which don't do that unless you are crazy like me. For people who've never experienced anything like that, um, what is the mood in the halls of Congress? What's sort of the, the energy over the last few days? Okay, so inside the Capitol right now, it's full of all of these random little caucuses and groups running around, trying to meet with various people. There's all this drama over who's in what meeting, who's walking down what hall, who's taking which call. There are just reporters camped out everywhere. Uh, There is this one moment where I believe a congressman was doing a live hit on television row. There's a small set of uh, cameras right outside the speaker, outside the uh, chamber where people can go and set up for um, TV hits. And he was on air and suddenly another congresswoman, I believe a congressman from the group of 20 walked by and suddenly this wave of reporters started chasing after whoever it was and bowled over the congressman on TV. (laughs) So uh, there's been an attempt to restore some amount of... uh, order to the press proceedings, but that pales in comparison to what's been going on behind closed doors. Well, Tina, you've been talking one-on-one with a number of people who are in or connected to the anti-McCarthy camp. So with the giant caveat that we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, and really anything could happen over the next couple hours between when we're recording and when we're going to release this, what is your assessment Mm -hmm. so far in terms of the appetite of the anti-McCarthy camp to keep fighting this. All right. So with the caveat that right now, according to C-SPAN, which I'm literally looking at right now, we are only about 25 votes into the eighth round of voting for McCarthy and McCarthy is still not going to be speaker. Right now, uh, the group I've talked to who are allies of the caucus, people involved in the negotiations, they are completely dug into making sure McCarthy does not get the speakership at all. There are very few concessions that McCarthy could make. Uh, There are very few entreaties that he'd be able to give them that would rebuild this trust that they just don't have in him. Like everyone I talked to for this piece I just published emphasize that they just simply do not trust McCarthy because of the way he's behaved in the past, the votes that he was whipping on the floor, the fact that he initially was the type of person to try and convince Donald Trump to step down after January 6th and then turn around and say, oh, actually, you know, I've been super MAGA the entire time. Uh, And the really big one that this group of congressmen uh, who are nearly all like freshmen, like sophomores, who've only had been in Congress 
in like the post-Trump era who've been they still have this really acute memory, I guess, of McCarthy and the establishment allies of his coming into their primaries and trying to meddle with their runs in open seats or put the thumb on the scales for uh, incumbent, more moderate Republicans. So there's a bit of a revenge thing going on here as well, trying to avenge their fallen compatriots and kind of paying back McCarthy for what he did to them personally during those primaries. So the only way that one could conceivably win them over is if McCarthy completely abases himself to them. Like he has to give up every lever of power he has, both politically and procedurally. He has to vow to never try to go against them ever again. And they have to believe him. Like he can't just make a symbolic gesture. He can't just say, oh, um, I'll give you the motion to vacate. But you guys just like promise me that you're never going to do it. Right. Because, you know, that's so improper. No, they it has to be something that is tangible. And the thing is, like, these guys have studied parliamentary procedure for, like, weeks leading up to this, maybe months. They know how to keep this entire process stale, and they will just keep going until McCarthy is out. Like, I think that's the easiest way to end all of this. McCarthy has to go. Yeah, it's sort of incredible. I mean, even if Kevin McCarthy does manage to become speaker at this point, he's going to have this sort of suicide bomb collar around his neck, as you have pointed out before where his colleagues can initiate this motion to vacate him basically at any time. And like you said, they've promised not to use that power, not to over abuse it, but it's there. And it's sort of impossible to imagine how he could govern in that position. But um, Tina, it seems like this is a story that a lot of people in political media sort of missed, or at least they they underestimated it, they glossed over it. Um, not only the depths of the hostility to McCarthy, but also just that there were so many other people out there in the anti-McCarthy camp or the McCarthy agnostic camp, whatever you want to call them, who were willing to stand up and risk voting against their potential future leader. Were you surprised both by this particular narrative emerging and also that so much of the media seems to have missed this story coming? I'm not surprised that the media missed it. I think there's a, not to you know disparage my peers, but I feel like there's always this underestimation or misconception about the strength of the MAGA movement and exactly how far they will go in order to wage a, what one of my sources called a holy war. I'm not kidding. That's exactly what he called it. But I would also have to credit a lot of this misunderstanding to exactly how quiet the operation of the 20 was. So leading up into this, my understanding of how this group came together was that there were five Never Kevins who openly got in public, started spouting their mouths. Oh, we're never going to have... Uh, like, we'll never vote for McCarthy. They were super public about it. There were five of them, so that would obviously, like, prevent McCarthy from becoming speaker. But, you know, you can work with five. Secretly, you've got 10 to 15 people trying to find an alternative, but also putting together this game plan of what to do when we get on the floor. Who's going to say what first? Who's going to be the first one to come out with a statement saying why they can't vote for Kevin McCarthy? It was a very well-laid plan. And they went through incredible lengths to make sure it didn't leak. Basically, the Never Kevins drew all the public fire and everyone followed them because, you know, that's fun and flashy and everyone loves going world star between like Gates and Kevin McCarthy. But I think that served in 
the best interests of all of these backbenchers. And another thing that someone pointed out to me was that a lot of these guys are new. Like some of them have only been in for one term, maybe two, three or four of the people on this and the Never Kevins are like they were literally just elected. And honestly, this kind of goes to show exactly what a very motivated new person can do even before they're sworn in. Like, They've basically held the entire Congress hostage and no one anticipated them coming. Yeah, one thing that's been really incredible to me that stood out from your reporting is just how much of this is personal as opposed to political. I mean, they they really they distrust this guy, not only because his leadership pack funded some of their challengers during the primary or then um, didn't sufficiently back them during their general elections, but also there's just this sort of general sense that Kevin McCarthy's sort of a nihilist, that, that he cares a lot about his own political ambitions, that he'll say and do anything. And um, that can work in your favor in, in some circumstances. But for the MAGA block that has very deep convictions around some of these things, they don't want to elect as leader somebody who doesn't share their convictions to the fullest possible extent. Absolutely. Like, I think that is the biggest thing people underestimated here. They thought that once you have a whole bunch of MAGA people, the ones you are able to weed out, uh, the ones who kind of filter their way through the progress, the the moment that you get them in Washington, they stare up at the Capitol, the awe is supposed to descend upon them, and they're like, all right, now I get to play nice, and if I'm nice enough, you know, Kevin McCarthy will give me a seat on whatever committee. I'm a baby freshman, I know nothing. The very idea of Washington, the deal making, the closed doors, the like people being dragged into Tom Emmer's office to hammer out a deal and then McCarthy leaking it behind their backs as Scott Perry's alleged. Like that's the sort of process that these guys have come into Washington to reject. And this is them making a statement on day one. And it's it's dramatic and it's procedural, which I think are the two cornerstones of exactly how the MAGA movement works. I mean, remember what happened on January 6th where they just started saying, hey, here's like a magic bit of arcane case law that proves that you can have Mike Pence suddenly declare the vote, the Electoral College invalid. Like this is basically that on crack, but without the insurrection. Well, an insurrection of another kind. I, I get what you're saying, though. I mean, it comes from the same place as the originalist imagination run amok. But Tina, at, at the risk of asking you to predict how this all turns out, because uh, like, like we said, this is, this is ongoing. There's literally another vote taking place as we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sense now of what direction we're headed? I think they're going to keep casting around for another potential speaker, but I do think their biggest hope is that if they keep holding out and McCarthy becomes weaker and weaker by offering more and more and, you know, chopping off his limbs or whatever, if they demand it, they could seriously wear down the rest of the caucus, turn the caucus against McCarthy and just like ask him, hey, step down. This is getting pointless and stupid. Now, whoever the candidate that everyone settles on, I think members of the 20 who are aware that they won't be able to win over the rest of the moderates if they put forward a member of the Freedom Caucus. Although Jim Jordan could be cracking, who knows. But the ultimate goal is to just not have Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Full stop. In other words, they'd be willing to vote for just about anyone else who emerges as a unity candidate, whether that's Steve Scalise or someone else. 
Um, maybe not Steve Scalise so much, but they would if if there was a power ranking of you know Scalise versus McCarthy. McCarthy would be on like the ninth circle of hell, and Steve <laughs> Scalise would be somewhere not that low. Well, politics is the art of compromise, Tina. <laughs> but we'll we'll see how it all turns out. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.